heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me pray. Fathers, we come to you, um, have the privilege of sitting under not just now the reading of your word, but the preaching of your word. Help us to be diligent hearers who seek to hear, see, and understand, know the Lord Jesus, and to obey. Father, we pray for uh, Matthew as he preaches to us, fill him with your spirit. We thank you for him. We thank you for his faithfulness. Um, thank you for the, 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 the man that brought him and, and faithfully discipled him into being a believer and, and, and grace upon grace, here he is now on the other side of the world sharing your word to us. What an awesome providence. Father, we pray for the ministry of 20 schemes. Pray for the 18 already um, planted churches in different various stages. Encourage them as they gather on their Sunday in the word to continue to faithfully trust you, to not walk away. And we pray for the health of those churches, that you provide for them in all their practical needs and spiritual needs, um, leaders uh, to, to help faithfully shepherd uh, the flock in, in Scotland. We thank you for the ministry there. Bless it, we pray. And now we come to hear God's word. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much. So uh, great to great to be here. Let me um, just explain the accent a little bit. So born in Norway, English mum, Irish dad, American wife. Your accent would be messed up too. Um, so uh, you know, uh, just recently I was in Albania with uh, one of our church planting cohorts. We've got another ministry where we equip church planters who are working in poor communities around the world, and I was in a taxi going back to the airport, um, and just chatting with the driver in that taxi, and just sharing a little bit about what I was doing, about the work that we do, um, and the taxi driver just leaned over and said, I want what you have. I want what you have. And it struck me. And what, what is it that he wants? Well, he wanted that sense of peace, that confidence, that optimism, that sense of hope and drive that the gospel gives us. And I pray that one day he would have what we have that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But do people who know you ask that same question? When they see the way that you wrestle with the struggles and the challenges that you're facing in your life right now, is the gospel taking so much root in your life? Is it grounded in your life that is causing people to see the faith, hope, confidence, joy? Enough that people would say, huh. What is it that you have that I don't have? You see, we can, we can look at the world around us and the, the struggles and the chaos. We can see how weak the church is, or at least it appears to be. And we can feel weak. We can feel insignificant. We can feel like everything is against us. Certainly when I'm in Scotland and I see in my hometown in Aberdeen, all these old church buildings closed and empty, turned into casinos and office buildings and mosques. A legacy of a Christian heritage that once was, but now is no more. And we can feel that the, the church is 
week, that we're on the losing side. But the gospel reminds us that if we are in Christ, we stand on unshakable grounds, that our confidence cannot be shaken, that our hope will never be taken from us. And that's what these words in Hebrews 12 point us to. The author of Hebrews is is fleshing out for us the difference between those who follow Jesus and those who are continuing to reject him. He's talking to a a young group of, of new Christians, a small struggling church, who is suffering a great deal because of their faith. Many of them suffering persecution, often being shunned by their friends and their family. And they look back to their life they once had when they were living as a Jew and worshiping in the synagogue. Their business was flourishing. Their family life was strong. And it seemed like they had so much more. And they're asking the question, is following Jesus worth it? Is it worth it? When it seems like we've lost so much, would it not be better to walk away from the church, to walk away from the faith, to go back to what we once had, who we once were, when it seemed like life was easier? Maybe we're tempted to ask the same thing. Would it not be better just to go back to what we once had, what we once were? We come to a quite beautiful part of Hebrews where the author is painting a picture for us. He's contrasting the old covenant, the way the Jews remained committed to, and the new covenant, the way of Jesus. He's painting this image. I was watching a, a TV show just when I was in, uh, back in the UK a couple weeks ago. And there's a TV show where uh, people would take a, a painting that has been maybe given to them down the generations from grandparents of giving it to a kid. And, and they're not sure how much this painting is worth. And so they give it to these um, art investigators. And they kind of do x-rays on it. And they look back and they reveal the true value. Is it a fake? Is it a fraud? Is it an actual actual print from an author, it reveals the value of what they had when they had no idea the value of it up until that point. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's revealing the value by, by exposing for us the picture of what it is that we have in Christ. These two covenants are represented by these two glorious mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, I'm not a, a guy for heights, get really dizzy um, on heights, which is kind of funny because I used to be in the British Coast Guard and uh, I used to get winched down cliffs and do cliff search and rescue. You ever think back to, there are things you did when you were 18 year old years, but you can't do them today. Well, that's me when it comes to heights. And uh, if I'm up a mountain, I quickly will pass out. I can't even drive over that bridge going to Brisbane. That, that like, I mean, what is that? I was driving up that thing and I almost passed out driving here uh, yesterday. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so he's painting these pictures of these peaks, but there's something about it. Look, I come from the Scottish Highlands, and you look at the majestic hills and the mountains and the valleys of Scotland, and it leaves you with a sense of awe and wonder. And what the author wants you to do as you're reading these words is step back and look at the, the peak, look at the majestic mountains, Sinai and Zion. It's a contrast. Hebrew is a book of contrasts. The author is trying to help us to see as Christians, to understand what it is that we've come to embrace. 
Really, what the author is doing in the whole book of Hebrews is making this one simple point. Jesus is better. Jesus is always better. He's better all around. He is the better priest, the better prophet, the better king, the better sacrifice, the better law, the better blood, the better hope, the better life for all who come to him. The promises made in the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. So why look back when we have so much more, so much better? What is it that's making them want to give up on Jesus? What is this making this young group of Christians question, is it worth it to follow Christ? Well, the things that they crave, a sense of security in their jobs, in their workplaces, a, a sense of prosperity as they've lost so much, a sense of comfort as the world comes against them, a sense of popularity when people now despise them. But those are the same things that would drive us away from Christ. Those are the same cravings that would lead us to question. When we look back at our old life, it offered us that, but it didn't. You may think it gave you security and prosperity, and you may think it gave you a sense of peace, but it didn't. But Jesus does. Jesus does. So let's look at these two mountains, and you'll see Mount Sinai, there's seven descriptions, and Mount Zion, there's seven descriptions. Let's contrast the two. First, let's come to Mount Sinai. Look at, again, verse 18 of Hebrews 12. And it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg them no further messages to be speaking to them. It's a number of things we see about Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is that mountain that God showed up. We just read together the, the Ten Commandments. It's when God showed up and revealed himself and his holiness before an unholy people. But the first thing we see, verse 18, is for you have not come to that which may be touched. And he's saying, making the point that Sinai was a real mountain. It was a physical place. It could be touched. You could go to Mount Sinai and climb that hill. This mountain was a literal and physical place. Moses himself stood upon it. But even though this mountain could be touched, the people dare not touch it. The people dare not go near it. For this mount was a place of holy terror, a physical representation of our separation from a holy God. They could hear his voice, but they could not get near to him. For if they did, they would die. Mount Sinai says, do not come near. Do not enter. It has a massive no entry sign at the bottom of the trail. Sinai was not the way to life, but it marked a way to death. A touchable mountain, which we could not climb. Second thing we see was this blazing fire. As the power of God descends, the mountain is surrounded by smoke because of the fire that descends upon this holy hill. When God himself came down in order to reveal himself and lay down his law, 
Sinai became a most fearsome mountain, shrouded not in clouds, but in fire and smoke. As the law of God descends, so does the image of God's judgment and his justice. Those who stand before a holy God are condemned by a consuming fire. They will suffer an everlasting inferno. When God comes, he stands in judgment against those who stand against him. Third thing we see is darkness. Darkness descends. You see, this fire was not there to, to bring light, to lighten up the world around them, but it revealed the darkness that people were in. It revealed the darkness of people's own hearts, the grave danger that fell upon them. The law of God comes to a darkened world, a world of darkness darkened by sin. And so we see in Mount Sinai, a mountain they could not approach, a blazing fire that threatens to consume, a darkness that descends on the hearts of all who see it. But then forth we see gloom, gloom. Although this holy mountain became sacred ground, the people who saw it were not overcome with joy, but with great sadness, a glum sense of dejection, a weariness of the soul. It says, look at God, so holy, but look at me, so wicked. How can I ever approach this holy God? Deuteronomy 4 verse 11 says, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of heaven. Darkness, clouds, and thick gloom. Just picture the scene. The Israelites, the people of God, standing at the foot of this mountain, and the horror of the place. We live in a day and an age where people dismiss God. They write him off. They want nothing to do with him. They, they believe, most people believe, that they can judge God. They get to decide who God is and how God thinks and what God says. They get to decide how we get to approach God. Many people consider themselves to be his judge. It's recently in Texas and hotel and, and standing at the lobby, a guy asked me what I was doing and I was at a pastor's uh, conference and, and he immediately says, well, I used to be a pastor once. He was a youth pastor and said, but I've given up on all that now. So now he's a agnostic. He believes in the sense of God. But he says, but I can't believe in a God who allows so much hurt and evil in the world. I can't believe a God who allows people to go through, much, go through so much pain. He's passed judgment on God. He himself has set himself as the judge against this holy God. To even say that, to say I cannot believe in a God who allows evil, it's a complete misunderstanding of who God is. God doesn't allow evil to come near to him. God is a God of justice and holiness and mercy. 
The question isn't, I can't believe in a God who allows evil. The question is, I can't believe in a God who would allow an evil person like me to draw near to him. That's what should startle us. That's what should strike us. We don't get to decide who God is. He is a holy, awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-consuming fire. And there will come a day when all will stand before this holy God. All will stand before this blazing fire. And if our hearts remain shrouded in darkness, it will not matter what you think about this God or how you feel about him. For at that moment, all you will know is darkness and gloom as you stand before him. Next, we see this tempest, swirling winds that rise up. A holy mountain, a blazing fire, darkness descending, gloom abounding, and this tempest, this storm swirling all around. A great and fierce wind stirring up the dust, rushing past those who stood at the foot of the mountain with the most horrendous noise as the Lord descended. Winds, like a most powerful tornado, destroyed everything in its path. I live and pass it today in, in Kentucky, just outside Louisville, Kentucky, and it's Tornado Alley. One of the most fearsome things in, in, in Kentucky, as well as other than just the people themselves, is, the, uh, is the, the tornadoes and the threat of it. There's a siren that goes off, and there's many times that this storm has come and been woken up at two or three in the morning and the sirens are blaring. When those sirens go, it means a tornado has been spotted. And so we go to our place of safety in the hope that the tornado, if it goes over our house, we would survive. The Lord descends with a destructive wind, a mighty power. Spurgeon said, all heaven seemed convulsed. When God rent it and descended in majesty upon that sacred mount. But then we hear the noises of the mountain. Trumpets blast. The sound of trumpets. We're told not only what they saw, but also what they heard. A mountain they could not touch, but dared, a mountain they could touch, but dared not to. A blazing fire, a cover of darkness, a gloom descending, a wind surrounding them. And then trumpets blasting. From atop that mountain came these loud trumpet blasts. One that got louder and louder and louder as God got nearer and nearer. It is the fanfare of the majestic king coming in his glory. All of it conveys the, the sense of the presence and the power and the purity and the might of this God. Who comes in holiness and the people respond as terror seizes their hearts and it says they trembled before this God. And then a voice is heard. A voice comes from the top of that holy mountain. As God descended upon that mountain, he came to do that which God always does. He brings his word. He spoke. And when God spoke from behind the darkness and the winds, the trumpets and the fire, the people begged Moses to make him stop. 
They wanted to silence the voice of God. They couldn't stand it anymore. Exodus 20 verse 19 says, Speak to us yourself, Moses, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, for we will die. So here we have this picture of the holy God coming to bring his law. Come to speak to his people in order to expose them. To make them feel the full weight of their rebellion against him. You see, the law of God is like a mirror. The more we look into it, the more we see ourselves. The idolatry of our own hearts. The unfaithfulness of our affections. The deceit of our words. The hate of our attitudes. The envy of our desires. We stand before the law of God at the foot of Mount Sinai and we're left utterly undone by it. It reminds us of how far off we are from this God. It tells us that we have a most serious problem. If this is God and if this is His law, how can we ever draw near to Him? How can we ever be put right with Him. For were even one inch of us to step onto that holy mountain, we would be utterly destroyed by it, consumed by the fiery rage of God's anger against our sin. Sinai says, Stay away, O unholy ones. God does not change. He is still this same God. He has not changed his ways and he has not changed his character. He remains holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty, righteous and terrifying and all-powerful. His law comes and it reveals and exposes us. Are you stuck at the foot of Mount Sinai? Looking up to a God you cannot touch. Looking into your own life and thinking, how can a holy God love a sinner like me? I wonder if when you consider your relationship with God, are you still struggling with a sense of fear, darkness, guilt, shame? Trying your best to please an angry God. Working your hardest to make amends for your own sin. Hearing the word of God, but wanting it to be silenced, for you cannot stand it anymore. Look up, for there is good news. If you follow Jesus, he takes you from Sinai to Zion. We're not at the foot of Mount Sinai anymore, for we've come to the foothills of Zion. And the author takes us there. Next, look at verse 22. But you, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to 
God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you hear the call of Zion? It says, come closer. How different it is to the call of Sinai that says, stay away. Sinai broadcasts a message of God's anger against those who sinned against him. But Zion blasts out a message of God's grace and mercy of all who come to him. Sinai issues a warning. Zion issues an invitation. Verse 22 says, but you have come. He's writing to Christians. Those who have come to accept Jesus Christ for who he is. Those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation. He reminds them, you have come to Mount Zion. You are not at Sinai anymore. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to follow Jesus? All too often we forget where we have come from and where we have come to. We've come to the city of the living God. What a staggering and extraordinary privilege we have to draw near to this God. Notice the seven descriptions of Zion. It's quite the contrast. The first thing we see is this is a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The name Zion had come to mean the hill upon which the temple sits. It marks the the presence of God, the holy hill. It's synonymous with the idea of God's presence. Unlike Sinai, this is not a physical mountain, a mountain that you would walk to and, and trek on your way up. It is not a mountain that we can take a pilgrimage to in order to climb it. This is a heavenly mountain. This mountain comes to us. The very dwelling place of God. It comes to us. Wherever we are. It draws near to us. We might be on this earth right now, but we no longer belong on it. For we are on a holy hill. In a heavenly city. Our churches... These gatherings of faithful saints, we are emissaries, consulates of of Zion, representatives of our king. We have already come. We're not hoping that maybe one day I'll be granted access to this holy hill, this heavenly city. We've already arrived if we are those who are in Christ. My daughter Alice recently got her British citizenship. She's now a, a dual citizen, is the daughter of a of a Brit, and so we got to go to the, uh, the British Embassy in uh, the consulate in Chicago. We went there, and uh, she had her swearing-in ceremony as a, a British citizen. We went in, got out, out the busy streets of Chicago, and we went in this uh, elevator up to the 22nd floor, and after I almost passed out, I got out the elevator, and, um, and then it was as if I stepped into Britain. There's a portrait of the king, and, and, the, and there was like tea and biscuits sitting on the table, and uh, that everybody had, had quaint British accents and, and, and they were so fun and, and friendly. And, like, I, I took my American citizenship test and had to go to an American embassy, uh, American um, uh, 
court to get sworn in. And I can tell you, they were not that friendly. Uh, anybody, an American in a uniform likes to shout at you, um, and usually not in a friendly way. But the Brits, they were like, all right, love, come on in, sit down, have a cup of tea. It was like, like a taste of Britain in the middle of America. And here we have in the church a taste of heaven in the middle of a dark and depraved world, the city of the living God. The second we have, we have come to innumerable angels. This is not some lonely trail upon some deadly mountain. For those who are on Mount Zion join with thousands upon thousands of angels. And these angels are not here to blast trumpets of judgment and doom. These angels are having a party. It says a festal gathering, literally a feast, a, a celebration. They're, they've cranked up the dance music, and there's nothing but joy on this hill. Now, this idea of festal gathering, is, it denotes the idea of excitement and revelry and celebration. You ever been on a cruise? If you go on a cruise, first night of the cruise, what do they have? They have the sail away party. Everybody gets on the the top deck and the, the band comes out and they play and they, they crank up the, the music because we're sailing away from the dark, dreary reality of, of our life back home and we're just for a moment going to get a taste of paradise and, and a, a place where we can be where we want to be and live the way we want to live. These angels are it's our sail-away party. They're celebrating with us. We're on a journey. We're, we're already on the journey to a, a heavenly city. And they cranked up the music, a festal gathering, rejoicing with you. When we gather each Sunday, we do so with a great cloud of witnesses, singing as we sing. Remarkable that we get to gather before an audience of angels, and we get to sing as they sing to this glorious King. John Stott once said, Christian worship must be serious. But it must never be dull. It must be serious, but it must never be dull. For we have much to celebrate. Third thing is we've come to the assembly of the firstborn, the city of the living God and innumerable angels, an assembly of the firstborn. We are a gathered assembly making our heavenward march to Zion's hill. This idea of the firstborn refers to those who will inherit the kingdom of God, who receive the inheritance. Those who stand in Christ will inherit his kingdom. We are heirs to this royal city. If you are in Christ, your name is written in the guest list of heaven. We are named in the last will and testament of the Father. We will receive our royal inheritance. No matter where on earth we might be, we find members of this royal assembly. We might be separated today by race and ethnicity, by class and geography. But one day, we will stand as one assembly, worshiping the one true God in that royal city. And then fourth, we see we've come to God, the judge of all. What is our destination? Where are we going as we make our way up this holy hill? Well, those who are walking up Mount Zion are coming to God himself. But it's interesting that 
the author describes God, the same God as Sinai. God the judge. God has not changed. He is still the judge. He still judges those who are separated from him because of his law. We stand before the judge. But we're no longer condemned. Because we've been acquitted of all charges. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. From the law of sin and death. The sentence was given. Guilty. The punishment was declared. Death. The debt was paid. Jesus paid it all. The record has been wiped clean. We stand before the judge, not with fear and trembling, but with joy and confidence, acquitted of all charges that were once held against us. And fifth, we come to the spirits of the righteous. I love this one. We've gained access to the very same city where all the righteous who have died before us have gone before us. This idea of spirits of the righteous refers to those who have died with a living faith in the one true God. Those of the old covenant who died with faith like Abraham and Noah and David, Solomon, but also refers to those in the new covenant who've died in faith in Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years. Where are they now? Where are they? Those who are saved, who have passed from this life to their new life, they are with God. They can see and enjoy God and all His goodness. The Christian who dies, they don't become angels. They're not spirits haunting us or floating around us. They're not looking at us. They're looking at Jesus. They're in the heavenly place. And they're loving it. And they're waiting for the moment that will come when they will descend with their Lord Christ Jesus. And those who are still living will ascend to join Him. And this heavenly city will make its presence on earth. You see, there's better for us, even better than being with God in heaven, is that those spirits will descend from heaven with Jesus to be reunited with glorified, perfected bodies in order to live in an eternal city here on this recreated earth. That's the promise of Zion. When the persecutor comes, this promise still stands. When cancer comes, this promise still stands. When that tragic accident happens, this promise still stands. When deadly catastrophes come our way, this promise still stands. When old age finally causes our body to give up, this promise stands. When all of this threatens to destroy us, all it can do is bring heaven closer to us. That's the promise of Zion. We come to the spirits of the righteous, but then we come to Jesus, the mediator. Keep looking up Zion's hill. 
And who do we see standing right there? Right at the center of it, we see Jesus. We come to Jesus. We see Him and we know Him and we delight in Him. Our dearest friend, our healer, our comforter, our encourager. But who is He? Our mediator. He is not simply standing idly by, hoping that we would make it up this holy hill. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end, the start and the finisher. He is the one holding on to us. All who ever belong to the Father, He shall give unto the Son, and the Son will keep us and hold fast to us, and not one will He let go. We could not get there without Jesus. We need Him. But if you know Him as your friend, your brother, your Savior, your King, your Mediator, He will not fail you. We come to God through faith in Christ or we do not come at all. He is the only way to climb this holy hill. That He is the way. Do you know Him? Do you know Christ as your mediator? How? How possibly could this Jesus, this Son of this holy living God, how could He get us, wicked, sinful, dark, depraved, deceitful people who have broken every one of these laws, how can this Jesus get us up this holy hill? Well, finally, He tells us, we come to the blood that speaks a better word. How does Jesus get us there? How could Jesus get us from the foothills of Zion under condemnation to the top of to the foothills of Sinai, up to the top of Mount Zion under grace? Because his mercy is more. His blood speaks a better word. You can remember the story of Abel? The first one who was savagely murdered by his brother Cain. The first burial. The first blood spilt in anger and rage. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and justice against his brother. But the blood of Jesus cries out a better word. The innocent Son of God was savagely murdered by his brothers and sisters, by you, by me. It was our sin that held him there. But the shed blood of Jesus speaks a better word. For it cries out not for vengeance, but for mercy. He does not hate you. He is not seeking justice in order to condemn you. He loves you. He forgives you. He extends his hand of grace towards you. And he says, come to me. Come up this holy hill. Come to the friend of sinners. His blood speaks a better word. Remember that taxi driver who asked that question? I want what you have. This is what we have.
if we stand in Christ. Do you really know what you have in Christ this morning? Do you remember it daily when the world confronts you? Do you see Christ in you, in your joys, in your sense of hope, your confidence? Do people see Jesus in us when we gather, when we suffer? We should be the most optimistic people on earth, the most hopeful people on the planet. Now, there are some who make Christianity in the church about nothing more than Sinai, about laws and darkness and gloom. They make it about how you dress and how you speak and what you eat, and they pile guilt upon you. They make church a place of judgment and laws and ritual and shame and condemnation. Some churches get stuck on Sinai, but Zion is a place of joy, freedom, hope, and it invites you. Draw near to Jesus this morning. You can do it because He has promised to help you. He's promised to meet you. Cry out to Him. Know Him. I mean, really know Him. Like a friend, a brother. Draw near to Him. Confess that we stand condemned by His law. Repent. Turn away from Zion and walk towards this heavenly hill. Believe. He is who he says he is, the mediator, the blood that speaks a better word. Be transformed. Be transformed to men of women of faith. Those of you here this morning who are followers of Jesus, be assured of this. No matter how hard or confusing this life becomes, we stand on unshakable ground. For if you look ahead, verse 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The world might shatter your hopes and dreams. It might try to crush you, whether through loss or pain or persecution but our faith is unshakable. I was a couple of years ago in Nepal and Kathmandu and a great earthquake shook that city. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, another earthquake shook that city. And you drive around Kathmandu, it's like these buildings have just come crashing down. You can imagine if you're inside those buildings, there is no, no way to go, nowhere to hide. Well, there will come a day when this world will be shaken to its core. Everything will shake. Everything. Everything you built, your careers, your homes, your families, your, your retirement funds, your things that you put your hope and your trust and your confidence in, everything will shake on the day when Jesus returns. Except one thing. One thing will not shake on that day. One thing that is utterly unshakable. Christ and His church will stand on that day when everything else comes crashing down around it. All will stand before God. We either stand at the foot of Sinai condemned by the law, or we stand upon Zion's hill, saved by grace. The question is, where are you standing today? Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for your incredible grace, your mercy, your faithfulness. For we know what it was to stand at Zionite Hill. We know what it is to feel condemned by your law. We know that you are good and holy and righteous, Father. Who are we that you should be mindful of us? Who are we that we can approach you, that we can draw near to you? Even now, as I pray these words, that you would hear our words. And yet you do. For you have made a way for us to walk up this holy hill through Christ our mediator by his blood, the better word. So Father, I pray that you'd help us in the moments we face doubts and discouragements and security and fear. Help us to look back at Zion. Help us to see who we are in Christ. Renew our strength. Restore our joy. Remind us that we are unshakable. And if there be any this morning who still stand at the foot of Sinai, troubled by guilt and shame, confronted by their own sin before a holy God, O oh, Father, may the heavenly city draw near to them this morning. Open their eyes that they might see Jesus and may they walk towards you in faith. Do this as only you can do for the glory of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, now we get to um, share in the, um, the sacrament of, of the Lord's Supper, which is in many ways a, 